something I used to do uh, quite a bit that I now almost never do post kids uh, was go to the movies. You used to go all the time uh, and then children into your life and you just never go anymore. It's one of those things you just kind of forget about, right? When COVID shut down all movie theaters, nothing about my life changed. I was like, oh, that must be sad for kidless people. But we're, we're right now, you know, we've got three kids. We're trying to be a bit more strategic. So sometimes we actually, we have gone to a movie or two over the last four years. If you get your babysitter for this much time, okay, and we got it for three hours, the movie is two hours and 50 minutes. I think we're good. Okay, drive time, got to get five minutes. I got to run that red light at 380 and harden and we'll be fine, right? But something we always, uh, uh, always forget to factor in is the previews. The 20 to five hours of previews that happens before. And I, I'll be honest, I love previews. Uh, sometimes I just sit on YouTube and watch trailers all day and Claudia's like, are you watching previews? I'm like, yes, I love it, right? I love getting drawn in the anticipation of a movie. Claudia, my wife, hates previews because they just give everything away right? Here's something that'd be awesome to go see, and you just saw it, right? So that's, that's what a good preview does. It will tell you what is this movie about, and then hopefully draw you in, create this great anticipation that makes you say, even though I have the important information, I want more. I want to go get more. I want to go to this movie. And Matthew, in a sense, today in this passage is going to give us a preview, a trailer, in a sense, of what this section of Matthew is about, He's going to straight up tell us, what is this section about, which is Jesus is the Son of God. As we've been preaching through Matthew, we've, been, we've tried to be really intentional to show you every piece of Matthew. Matthew isn't just sitting down and writing all he can remember, just scribbling it down. Here's, here's my Jesus biography. He's very intentional. From chapter 1 to chapter 3, I'm telling you this. From chapter 4 to chapter 7, I'm telling you this. He's very intentional. And so we've just left this big section of Matthew that's all about Jesus' rejection. He's rejected by the religious leaders, those who should know he's the Messiah. They reject him. He's rejected by his hometown, the ones who should welcome him as the hometown hero. They reject him. And his own family reject him. And then we've entered into this new section over the past few weeks that Matthew's main point is not rejection, but rather revelation of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. We'll see the ultimate culmination comes in chapter 16 when we get to Peter's great confession. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And then chapter 17 when God himself cracks open the skies and God tells us who Jesus is. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That will be the, the high point. That's the movie. Today we get the preview. Matthew's going to tell us through this very famous miracle story who Jesus is, the revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. And Matthew is going to leave you wanting more. This will not be a preview that you say, got it, I'll leave and go home. You will want to keep reading. So we'll see three things about the Son of God today. We'll see the devoted son, the divine son, and the determined son. Devoted son, divine son, and the determined son. So let's look at the first, the devoted son. Verse 22. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. 
So let's remember where we've been. So Jesus has been continuing his ministry, the whole book of Matthew. We saw him baptized in chapter four, tempted by the devil. And since then, he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We saw a giant sermon, the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. His fame is growing. He's doing these great miracles. People are following him. And then we've just left this, again, section of growing hostility. He's beginning to face people who aren't just fanboying him. In fact, they're very suspicious of him. In fact, they're beginning to oppose him. In fact, they're beginning to want him dead. That's where we've been. It's growing. And then we saw in the beginning of this chapter, John the Baptist, his beloved cousin, is killed. And his disciples, John's disciples, go and tell Jesus. That's how that story ended this tragedy of John the Baptist, who Jesus loves, goes and is is killed and tells his disciples. So there's all this tragedy mounting up for Jesus. And we saw last week before he fed the 5,000 this. Look at at Jesus' reaction to hearing of his cousin's death, to this reaction of feeling all this opposition. Matthew 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, but... When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And that's what we saw the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus hears this news in the context of people starting to oppose him, and he wants to get alone. He wants to go be by himself, but the crowd won't let him. And he has compassion on them. He feeds the 5,000. And that's where we ended last week. And that's where we'll pick up the story today. So right after this, immediately after this, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus does two things quickly. We see that word immediately three times in our passage today, this, this kind of idea of expediency. So Jesus takes the disciples, puts them in a boat, sends them to the other side. So start sailing, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and then he dismisses the crowd. So the 5,000 that were there, he dismisses them. Then, once he's dismissed everyone, and he's finally alone, he does something that is very important. He goes up on a mountain by himself to his father. He goes and gets alone with his father, and he prays. Now, if you're just reading this story, there might be a temptation to just think this is like a spiritual transition between two awesome miracle stories. So we've got the feeding of the 5,000, awesome. Jesus is walking on the water, awesome. Let's stick prayer in the middle. That'll help us pivot, right, to the next thing. But that's not at all what's happening here. In fact, Matthew here is giving us the first glimpse of who Jesus is. Matthew never wastes any words. He's giving us this glimpse that Jesus is the devoted son of the Father. He's the devoted son of the Father. One of the main themes we saw week after week after week when we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, when we were walking through Matthew 6, is the life of the Christian, the life of the citizen of the kingdom of God, the life of the disciple of Jesus is a life lived in communion with the Father, is a life lived in secret devotion before the Father in heaven who sees. Jesus says, when you fast, when you give, when you pray, don't do it out in public so that the world might see and give you the reward of their praise, thinking you're so awesome for your outward holiness. Rather, go in secret. Go close the door and pray. 
When you fast, put some gel in your hair so that nobody knows what's happening. Don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. Make it very difficult for worldly praise to be thrown your way. Live your life in secret devotion before the one who sees. And the Father in heaven who sees will reward you. When you're living this life, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Live for the Father's kingdom, the one who clothes the flowers and the one who feeds the birds. He will far more care for you. Your life is meant to be lived under the beautiful beams of the Father's gaze. And no one is a better example of that than the eternal Son. We're seeing here Jesus live out what Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 6. He's going to get alone with his Father. So again, think about this. Put, your, put yourself in the soils of Galilee. He is being rejected by those closest to him. There are people strategizing, how do I stop him? How do I potentially kill him? Opposition is growing and his cousin has just been killed. And what does he do? He flees to the Father for comfort. He goes like the psalmist, you are my fortress. You hide me under the shadow of your wings. Let's not forget that he's a man. Truly, eternally God became a man, fully, truly man. Don't pretend like he's floating through these stories unaffected by the opposition. He's feeling this, and what does he do? He goes to his Father for comfort. The opposition is growing, and he needs to continue his mission. What does he do? He goes to his Father for strength. Jesus' life on the earth is a life lived before the Father who sees, a life lived in constant communion with the Father and secret devotion for the Father. And what we need to see about this example, the thing that's very important for you and I to see when we read this is not just Jesus likes prayer, so we should too. But we need to see the reality that when Jesus compels you to something, when Jesus commands you to do something, he never just gives you random rules. He never gives you cold moralism. Every command, every exhortation is an invitation to your ultimate joy. Let me say it this way. Think about this. Nobody in the world knows how wonderful communion with the Father is like the Son. Jesus told us in Matthew 11, no one knows the Father except the Son. John 1 tells us, for all eternity, you want to know what was happening before page 1 of your Bible? You want to know what happened before Genesis 1, 1? John tells us, for all of eternity, the Father has been perfectly pouring out his wonderful love on the Son. Jesus says in John 17, 24, you've loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father perfectly loving the Son with the most unthinkably wonderful love. The Son glorifying the Father and loving the Father perfectly. That's what was happening for all of eternity. And that is what Jesus is calling you towards. That's what Jesus is inviting you to share in when he says, go get with the Father. Go close your door and be rewarded by the only reward that matters, your Father. He is inviting you towards 
what is best. He's inviting you towards ultimate joy when he gives us these commands. Don't misunderstand who he is. Do you hear him? Do you follow his example? Do you do this? Do you get alone with the Father? When the angst of the world begins to crush in on your soul, do you flee to him for comfort? When the overwhelming pressures of the world make you feel paralyzed, do you flee to him for your strength? He's there waiting. Come, my child. Waiting to comfort, waiting to give strength, joy, and life. One of my favorite passages uh, in uh, McShane's journal, Robert McShane, if anybody knows me, you know I love McShane. He says this. I think this is an example of him modeling this. 23rd of February, 1834, rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? Do you send people away and go up on the mountain to be with your father, child of the kingdom? This is not something extra for the especially holy. This is foundational. This is at the core of what does it mean to be a child of this God, to be a disciple of Jesus. And notice, very important, Notice that Jesus has to fight for this. Getting before the Father doesn't just stumble into Jesus' lap. He has to work hard for it. In fact, almost any time we see him in the Gospels get alone with God, he's saying no to good things. There's this scene in Mark 1 where he's basically healing an entire city. The line out the door seems endless. And at nighttime, when everyone else is, I guess, sleeping, they're taking a break, he sneaks out and is alone praying with his father. And when the disciples find him, they're angry. Where are you? Everyone is looking for you. He had to get away to be with the father. You will have to fight for this. It will take devotion. If you wait until you feel like it, if you wait until it's convenient, you never will. There will be nothing the enemy fights against harder. There'll be nothing your flesh fights against harder. It will be a battle. You'll have to sacrifice things like sleep, hobbies. You'll sacrifice bad habits. Those are easy. You'll have to sacrifice good habits for the greatest habit. Susanna Wesley, who's the mother of John and Charles Wesley and nine other kids, uh, had 11 kids, so she would have fit right in here at Parkway. And you can imagine that can be a slightly chaotic life. And so she got kids everywhere, but she had a, a, a daily habit, a discipline that she would do where she would take her apron and put it over her head. And that was her time to get along with the father. And the 11 kids knew when mom's apron's over her head, nobody messes with mom. And they were taught via discipline. You do not disturb mom when she's alone with her father. She didn't have a nice cozy prayer nook with a nice scented candle and a nice warm cup of coffee. She's got kids screaming in the 1700s with no bathrooms and all those sorts of things. And she would get alone. She would fight for it. If we wait till it's convenient, we'll never get there. You have to fight to 
get alone with your Father. That's what we see Jesus doing here. That's what we see him beckoning us to do by his example. And that's the first glimmer that Matthew shows us. He's the devoted son of God. So what's the next thing we're going to see? This is the main core, as you, as you imagine when we read this passage. The main core of this passage is the famous miracle story of Jesus walking on the water. And this is where we see the divine son. So look at verse 23. When evening came, he, Jesus, was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, there's that word again, immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So here is maybe one of the most well-known miracle stories. And here's the situation. Jesus has sent the disciples away so that he can go pray. The disciples are in the boat. They're sailing to the other side of the sea and they're by themselves. Notice that. That's actually pretty rare in the gospels. It is, it's not normal for them to be without Jesus as they're sent away. They, they're sent out sometimes on missions by themselves, two by two, but this sort of scene where they're just doing a normal thing, sailing across the sea without Jesus is not that normal. So they're alone. And then the winds begin to kick up and the waves begin to kick up and another storm shows up. And we've seen this before. We've seen a story of Jesus calming the storm, except what's the problem this time? There's no sleeping Jesus in the boat. As the winds begin to pick up and the waves begin to rise, there's no Jesus that they can cry out to. Rabbi, don't you care that we're perishing? They're alone. And then they're alone for a long time. Matthew says it's the fourth watch of the night. That was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they've been presumably trying to row to safety for hours to no avail. So they're terrified and they're tired. And then in this terrifying situation, they lift their eyes and they see someone or something coming to them on the water. And what's their conclusion? It's a ghost, right? Which is not a theological statement on the existence of ghosts. Rather, it's meant to show the irrationality of your thinking when fear is driving you. It's a ghost is their conclusion. And we know it's not a ghost, We know it's Jesus, and notice how he responds. He responds immediately. He responds quickly and calms them. Take heart. It is I. Do not fear. He doesn't rebuke them for being silly or dumb. No, ghosts don't exist. It's me. Don't you see me calm the storm? Wouldn't you just assume it's me by this point? I'm not with you. Someone's coming towards you. He doesn't say any of that. His motivation is to calm them to comfort them quickly, take heart, don't fear, it's me, it is I. I say that because there's often a temptation, you know, we see in the gospels, all the gospels, disciples are not the brightest and Jesus is God and their interactions sometimes We get annoyed by them as if we're better than them and we wouldn't make the exact same mistakes, but we get annoyed by them and we we sometimes read that onto Jesus that we just view Jesus like, no, my goodness. How many times do I have to tell you guys this? You know, and look how different. 
the Jesus of the scriptures is. Their dynamic is not one of annoyed God waiting for man to figure it out. It's one of compassionate Savior, quickly caring for his terrified, beloved disciples. So he calms them down, and here we get to the most famous part in verse 28. And Peter answered him. So we see it's Jesus. He calms him in his eye. Peter answers, or answers to Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the waters. He said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And all those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So they're terrified by the storm. They think a ghost is coming. Jesus calls them. Peter stands up and calls out. And notice what Peter says. Peter says, if it's you, you tell me to come to you. He doesn't just get out of the boat real quick. Jesus does. Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat, begins to walk on the water miraculously. And as he begins to feel the spray of the waves on his face, as he begins to feel the strength of the wind, his eyes drift down. His eyes that were fixed on Jesus begin to drift away from him. And all the trust that was in his heart flees, and in its place floods fear and doubt, and he begins to sink instantly. And as he sinks, he cries out for Jesus to save him. Jesus immediately grabs him, pulls him up, asks him, why did you doubt? Why did you take your eyes off of me? Then they get in the boat, and instantly, without Jesus saying, peace be still, the storm is calmed. And notice the disciples' reaction. Last time this happened, the disciples marveled, and they said, who is this man? that even the winds and the waves obey him. They know their Old Testament. They know only God tells the waves where to stop. They know only God treads upon the waters. The last time he calmed the storm, they marveled almost in terror and said, who is this man? Is that how they respond now? No, they don't marvel and ask. Rather, this time they worship and proclaim. Verse 32, truly you are the Son of God of God. And that's the great revelation that we'll see for the next couple weeks. Truly you are the divine son of God. That's Matthew's point. A typical way that this passage gets often uh, preached, prot, uh, misinterpreted is we make the main character of the story Peter. And in making Peter the main character, we make ourselves the main character. And so we primarily make it about foolish Peter, don't be foolish like Peter, or brave Peter, be brave like Peter, or, you know, Jesus comes to save you in the storms of your life and things like that. And that's not necessarily wrong, it's just backwards. 
because the main character of the story is not Peter, and it's not the cowering disciples. The main character, what Matthew wants your eyes glued to, is the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the main character, to give the Sunday school answer. And you may think, okay, why is that such a big deal in that kind of mountain out of a molehill? But if we're not careful, if we make Peter the point, or really make ourselves the point of how we are or are not like Peter, all of a sudden, the point of this story, and really pretty quickly, the point of the whole Bible is that God exists for you. God is ultimately about you. It's the Son of God who exists for you to meet your needs, to summon when you call, to get you out of a jam, right? And if we do that, that gets the whole story of the Bible and this story exactly backwards because God does not exist for you. You exist for him. He is God. He is the Son of God. You are not. He is the one that is worshiped. He is the one whose glory will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. You are the one who fades. He is the one who increases. We are the one who decreases. We don't get that backwards. But the good news is when you see that, when you have it in the right order, that Jesus is the point, that he is the one who's God, that he's the one on the throne, and that we exist for his glory, not him for ours, the incredible news is when he is the point, everything about how he relates to us becomes infinitely more precious. He's the God of the universe. He's the one who is in charge of everything. We exist for him and his glory. Yet, see in this story, he tenderly calms his disciples in the midst of their irrational fear. He's the king of the world to whom all praise is due, yet he beckons you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the one who controls the mighty winds and the waves, but he's also the good shepherd who holds you as a weak sheep in the palm of his hand. The one who is the point, the one who upholds the universe is the one who says to you, it's I, don't fear, take heart. It's the one who says to you, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the one who says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see how much more glorious that is than the divine butler we had when we had it backwards. The genie in the bottle is cool and he brings us stuff. He doesn't, he's not worth my worship. But the God of the universe who out of nothing but his unthinkable grace and love stoops down to care for me, I can worship that God. I can love that God. I can give my life to that God. And that's what Matthew's trying to show you here. Jesus is the divine son of God and you and I are meant to live with our eyes fixed on him not just in the morning in our quiet time, and then we go about our day after we've done our God stuff. We're meant to live and move and have our being 
in him every moment of our life. We meant to live in everything that we do with our eyes fixed. Hebrews 12 gives us maybe the best picture in the scriptures uh, of this. Hebrews 11 is this great hall of faith, as we like to call it, where the author of Hebrews goes through all the Old Testament heroes and shows that they did all the things that they did with their eyes fixed, the eyes of faith set on God. They didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. They just were trusting the promises of the future Messiah. But we now know that Messiah is Jesus, and then he says this for the persecuted church that he's writing to, the cowering church that he's writing to. He says this in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. Let us lay aside every sin and weight. Let us run this race of a life devoted to Jesus, pouring out our lives for Jesus. How, author of Hebrews, what's the first word of verse two? Looking to Jesus. Where are our eyes meant to be fixed as we run this race, as we breathe every breath that the Lord has given to us, as we live out every single day that God has appointed for us to live, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the son of the living God, and we're meant to live with our eyes fixed on him, looking to him every day. That's where our joy is, that's where our strength is, that's where our comfort is, no matter how bad the world gets. And notice, see the warning of this passage. If you look anywhere else than the Son of God, your heart will be filled with fear and you will sink. If you look anywhere else for your hope, if you look anywhere else for your joy or your life, or if you look anywhere else to solve all your problems, you will sink. One of the thing, one of uh, my seminary pet peeves, or one of the pet peeves I had while in seminary, Claudia and I both, uh, was every student in every classroom had their idea of if we just did this, all the church's problems would go away, right? Like most twenty-year-olds, here's how we fix the world. No one's ever thought of this. You're welcome. I'm here, right? We called it silver bullet theology, and so it was, you know, if we just restored biblical manhood and womanhood. All our problems would go away and probably society would be perfect. Or if we just uh, redid biblical literacy, right? What do we focus on? All this stuff, we just we study the Bible, right? People just don't know the Bible. That's the real problem we'll know if we just loved our neighbor, right? Stopped all this academic talk and chirp and just get in the dirt with the poor and then the church's reputation would be restored and everything would be fixed, right? If you just did this, we go back to all being, you know, one denomination, right? All the problems go away. You're welcome. We call it the silver bullet of theology. And it infuriated us. Well, I shouldn't say infuriated. It really annoyed us because it was, A, constant, and B, it's just very overly simplistic and no nuance. Uh, nuance doesn't sell well, by the way. When you hear people screaming about one thing, it sells a lot of books. So you can help the cause of the church by not buying those books. Um, but the main problem with that The main problem with the, if the church just did this, if we just set our eyes on this, all of our problems would go away, is the this is never Jesus. 
It's always something we do in our own strength. It's always something I can scream at people to try harder for. And we're seeing here what happens when the king of the universe is not at the center of your theological scheme, when he's not the very thing your eyes are meant to be set on, you, you sink. Now, listen to me. Don't email me. I know you guys are angrily typing already. All those things are important. I'm just saying if you hang your hopes for the world and for the church on anything that's not the son of the living God, we've, we've, we've gone off somewhere. We've gone off somewhere. He is the creator of the universe. He is the sustainer of the universe. He's the one that brings about the victory of God and the mission of God. He's the head of the church. He's the hope of the world. He is the one that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't set your eyes on anything else. See the warning here. If you set your eyes on anything else, you'll sink. And then also, look here, your heart will just be flooded with fear when you look away from him. We live in the day that, in the same way that no nuance doesn't sell, or sells actually really well, you know what else sells really well? Fear. If I want to get you to buy my product or join my cause, all I have to do is try and scare you. Look how bad the world is, therefore do this. Therefore, join my cause. Look look what's happening over here that's coming for your house too. I just have to do fear-mongering stuff. And listen, let me just be frank with you. The world is terrible. It's like way way worse than you think it is. And let me tell you how I know. Not because of the news. Uh, Because Jesus tells us like a thousand times. You will be sheep among wolves. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. The world will persecute you. The world will hate you. The world will kill you over and over again. Like, why would you be surprised when the world behaves the way that Jesus promises it's going to behave? But notice the most important thing. He does not just freak you out and then stop talking. He says, it's going to be bad. It's going to be worse than you think, no matter who you follow on Twitter. It's worse. Just assume that. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I'm on the throne. I'm the son of the living God. I say these things to you, he tells his disciples after he's just told them how much the world's going to hate them, so that you will have peace. So that you won't fear. So that you won't live your life motivated by the terror of the world, but rather by the sovereignty of your Savior the power of the son of the living God that's standing before you. And notice what happens. When you take your eyes off of him, you're flooded with fear, and that leads to doubt. But when you set your eyes back on him as the disciples, as the terrified disciples do in this story, fear is banished, and it's replaced with worship. When you set your eyes On him, the most terrifying tidal waves of this world turn into a splash in the bathtub. We see in Hebrews 13, this is what happens when you set your eyes on God. Hebrews 13, again, this is written to a persecuted church, a church that's literally considering, should we join Judaism? Because the Jews aren't being persecuted right now. Christians are. That's the motivation behind the letter of Hebrews. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. For he has said, he being Jesus, I will never leave you 
or forsake you. So we can, with our eyes set on that promise, I'll never leave you. I'm with you. I'm here. It is I. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Is that the norm for us? When we see foolishness out in the world, when we see scary things, do we press reshare on the email thread? Or do we say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, they're going to kill you. Okay, what can man do to me? Don't fear the one who can kill the body who can't kill the soul. Jesus already covered that. You see the radical difference between the normal way of behavior, be scared and make decisions based off of fear, and what Jesus is constantly trying to draw you towards. It's bad. It's scary. That's why I'm here. Look right here and let peace and confidence and boldness fill your heart. How do you think Paul lived the way he did when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain? He's like untouchable. We're going to kill you, okay? To die is gain. All right, fine, we'll let you live. I'm going to keep following Christ's mission. His eyes are fixed on the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not fear. What can man do to me now? John 16, 33 is the best summary of it. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. By the way, said these things is him just telling the disciples how bad it's going to get for them. They're going to hate you. And in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's just his way of saying, set your eyes on me. When the waves crash in, when you feel the power of the winds, don't look down. Set your eyes on me and have peace in the midst of the storm. There's one more thing I want us to see, and I think it's the most incredible thing about this passage. When Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, he starts to sink, but does he drown? No. Why? Because though Peter's eyes are taken off of Jesus, Jesus' eyes are never taken off of Peter. When we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Don't make the mistake of thinking, I'm talking about your performance, how good you should do at keeping your eyes up. You have a Savior who has never taken his gaze off of you. You have a Savior who is gentle and lowly when you're foolish, when you're faithless. He is faithful. He's the founder and the perfecter of your faith. He's the wonderful, divine Son. That's why you should worship when you sleep, because there's someone who never sleeps, who watches over you. So when you fail, when you fall, when your eyes look away, when you doubt, feel his tight grip around your wrist and worship. Because when we stumble and fall and are faithless, he is faithful. That's the divine son. Lastly, we see verse 34, the determined son. And when they had crossed over the sea, they came to the land of the Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. 
and as many as touched it were made well. So lastly, let's look at the determined son. So we won't spend a whole lot of time here. They, they get to another region. The people there see Jesus. They recognize him. They go get all their sick and they touch the fringe of his garment and everyone's healed. So that's, that's what's happening here. And I think Matthew is highlighting two main things. One, as he's revealing to us the kind of extraordinary revelation of Jesus, he's the son of God. He's the son of the living God. He's also showing kind of extraordinary miracles. We see something similar to this in Acts 19 and Luke, the author of Acts, specifically comments that this is an extra incredible thing. Acts 19, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick uh, and their disease left them and the evil spirits came out of them. St. Matthew's coupling that to say, here's this kind of another revelation of who Jesus is. He's, he's God's son. We'll keep seeing that increase again as Peter confesses it and then as God himself confesses it and we're seeing uh, extraordinary miracles accompanying that. But there's another reason. And so similarly with Jesus praying, you might be tempted to think, do we really just need another healing paragraph? Like we get it. Jesus can heal people. Is this just filler for Matthew? Is he just like, okay, transition from the 5,000 to another fight with the Pharisees? Let me put a healing filler in between. No, again, think about Jesus. We've just seen that he's fully, truly, eternally God. But the eternal God, the Son, became a man for our salvation. While remaining God, he became a man. He's truly man. He's feeling this opposition. He's gone to the Father and prayed because the opposition is growing. And so here we see, is he deterred? by the opposition? Is he buckling under the pressure? He feels it. We'll see him sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's not pretend, again, that he's floating through this unaffected. Is he deterred by the opposition? No, he's determined to carry out the Father's mission. He's continuing. As opposition grows, he's not just the divine son, he's also the determined son. He's the son who lives by the mantra, not my will, but yours, Father. And in the same way, his example of going before the Father in secret compels us to do the same. So this example of determination to finish the mission of the Father also compels us to pick up our cross and follow him. That no matter the opposition, no matter the oppression, no matter the threat or persecution, there's a deep determination rooted in Christ to continue his mission. That is the calling of Christianity. It's a high calling, it's a difficult calling, but it is the Christian calling and there is only one way to carry it out. And as you could guess, it's not by your own determination. It's not by you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or you just having enough grit to carry out the mission of the living God. Rather, it's to live by his determination. Not by your own strength, but by his strength. Because we all know the reality. The reality is, in this story, we're exactly like the disciples. We're exactly like Peter. We're constantly faithless. We're constantly driven by fear. We're constantly looking to ourselves and how are we going to get out of this. We're constantly displaying our own foolishness. But... Reality is also that when we're faithless, he's faithful. And the gospel would tell you 
that even though you and I are born with our eyes fixed on ourselves, Ephesians 1 tells us that before the foundations of the world, the Father's eyes were fixed on you, and in love, he chose you, and he predestined you that you would be adopted as his child to be the praise of his glory. The gospel would tell you that the same Savior who's walking on the water is eventually going to walk up to Calvary with a cross on his back and take the payment for your foolishness, for your rebellion. He's going to take the punishment for all of your sins so that, Ephesians 1, the Father might lavish his grace upon us, might break us free from the bondage. We might actually be able to lay aside every sin and wait and mainly to open our blind eyes to reality and dethrone ourselves from our own hearts. And because of that, because Jesus is going to keep walking on the water all the way to the cross, we can now actually lay aside every sin and wait. We can actually run the race with endurance. We can continue his mission with determination, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is right now, not in front of us, on the water in the midst of the storm. He's seated at the right hand of God in victory saying, it's finished. Set your eyes on him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all shall be well. And then go to the world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to look to ourselves, to look anywhere else, to look to human means of fixing our issues. I mean, they're there, they're tangible for us. We can see them. If X, Y, Z just happened, this problem would go away. We are very slow to wait upon the Lord to renew our strength. And yet that's what you call us to over and over again. We're very slow to abide in you. We're very slow to go before our Father and pour out our souls to you and saying, help this. Give me boldness to continue in the face of such fear. Lord, help us to be honest with you that it's okay to just say, I'm terrified, Lord, of what's happening. And fill our hearts with that strength that can only be found in you. Fill our hearts with that peace that can only be found in you. May us be like the disciples of the scriptures, Father. I thank you that you didn't select a bunch of all-stars that we can never emulate in the scriptures other than your son. All you did was select poor fishermen, uneducated people. And yet here we are 2,000 years later praising your wonderful name because a bunch of poor fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot all said we must obey God rather than man and they continued to preach the gospel May we follow them as we have our eyes fixed on your son, we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.